hear the sounds of Bibles coming out of their pews. Uh, it's a sweet sound to my ears. If you'd like to read with me now as we come before the Word of God, we'll be this morning again in Exodus chapter 12. You can turn to Exodus, Exodus 12. But before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we know that all things have been created by you and for you, that you are the head of the body, the church. And so now as your church, would you help us to glorify you? That as we hear from your word, would you open our ears to hear and our eyes to see that we would believe and delight to follow you? We give you praise and thanks in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Exodus chapter 12. We'll take this morning just a few verses here compared to previous weeks at least. Uh, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you've said. Take your flocks, your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. This is the word of God. Now, for us, it has taken several months to get to this point in the narrative, to the, get to the point where Pharaoh finally, finally says, go where Pharaoh lets my people go. For the people of Israel also, this has taken quite some time as well. Uh, not only has it taken a very long time, generations, hundreds of years even, uh, to get to this point out of their slavery, but also it's taken a fairly long time for the plagues themselves to unfold. We're not sure exactly how long this took, but we are told that between the first and the second plague, uh, there was a seven-day span. So if that's a pattern that continues, we don't know, but assume that it is likely to, it's likely then that from, Pharaoh, from Moses' first confrontation with Pharaoh to this point now was roughly three months. 
And that might not sound like a long time. I mean, that's just a season after all. That's a summer, you know, or a spring, three months. But I'm sure it feels like a long time when those three months are full of plagues. We're now at the 10th one, and all of those three months, all of that time is building here to this 10th plague where the Lord, with a final crushing blow, will bring death to all the firstborn in Egypt. And for this 10th plague, for being the, you know, the culmination, the capstone plague, it's, it's got all this even major preparation, 28 verses we talked about the last couple of weeks of Passover preparing up to this particular plague. The actual account of the 10th plague and how it happened is surprisingly brief. The plague itself is described in just one verse. Verse 29. And then the text just kind of moves on to what happens afterward. The, the shortness of the description, the shortness of that account tells us a few things. One, that this is not God's last big push to win his war with Pharaoh. This is not draining the Lord of any of his power or resources. There's just one verse here, and it's done. It's as if it doesn't even cause the Lord to break a sweat. It also tells us that the tenth plague is not his main goal. He's not just building up to the plague itself. The goal is what's going to happen after the plague, that Israel would be freed out of slavery. The plague, then, is a means to that higher end. So it tells us a few things, but the shortness also leaves us with quite a lot of unknowns because we just aren't told exactly how this played out. So we don't know what this scene actually looked like this night. If you've seen the movie, the movie, I guess there's a lot of Exodus movies, but you know, the, the Ten Commandments, the, what is it, in the 1950s with Charlton Heston and all of that. If you watch this particular scene, this moment where uh, the Tenth Plague actually occurs, there's sort of a bluish gray smoke that kind of just moves through the area and it's, it, it, it bumps into people. They just kind of collapse. We have no idea how close or far that is from the actual account. In fact, given that this was in the middle of the night, it's likely that you would not have seen it at all, except just the effect. We, do, we really don't know. We also don't know when the deaths occurred. We know that they occurred in one night, uh, but whether at midnight it was kind of all at once, or whether the midnight was kind of the beginning and it would gradually spread, sort of like the grayish-blue smoke. Uh, we don't know. Midnight suggests, perhaps, that they were struck all at one moment, but we're not sure. We also don't know the way in which the firstborn actually died, the biological cause for this. We're just told that they are struck down. And that word, struck down, is a reference to the suddenness of the death, not to pain. The, the great cry that arises in Egypt is not from the ones who died or are dying. The cry is coming from the mourning of their loved ones. And we also don't know where the ones who died ended up. 
We don't know exactly their spiritual state because we're not told. It's possible, I think even likely, that as the Egyptians in these last three months had watched these plagues unfold, that many of them had come to know the Lord as God, had come to believe that this one who has descended all these plagues was really the true and only God. So it is possible that some of those, at least, who are struck may now be in the very presence of Jesus. In fact, from what the scripture says about the Lord's mercy in some of these areas, it's especially likely that this might have been true for the youngest ones among them who were taken. But we don't know. There's lots we don't know here. And to try to deal with all the unknowns in this, I don't think that it is particularly helpful to try to imagine what this scene was actually like. To try to conjure up in our minds what this scene would have been. I don't think that's helpful, not just because we we want to be careful not to overstep the bounds of Scripture, we don't want to draw up things in our minds that may or may not be true, but also because we just truly do not have a category for what occurs here. The event that occurs this night is dark, and very heavy. And if my own family were Egyptians in that day, half of my house would be gone. Just my wife and one child would be left. It's a sobering thought. It can be scary to imagine that. But also, in a way, it's just impossible to imagine that, not because we don't know what grief is like, but because the scope of this is unimaginable. This is happening not just to my house, but to my neighbor's house, and my neighbor's neighbor's house, and my neighbor's 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 house, all throughout the land, the whole land. There was not a house in which someone was dead, so support systems, everyone is grieving. So we're not afraid of imagination, but it's not helpful, I don't think, to imagine these things. It is better, I think, to stick to what we do know about this, what we are given in the Word. And we do know the reason that this event occurred. We're told the reason back in chapter 4, even before Moses came back to Egypt. Where is it? Chapter 4, verse 22. Listen for the reason. The Lord says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So just as Israel, the people of Israel, are the Lord's firstborn, and these are the ones that he will save through the blood of the Passover that's put on their doorposts, so also the people of Egypt are Pharaoh's firstborn. And his firstborn, from the throne room to the dungeon, will all be struck with this final blow. The reason given here is because Pharaoh disobeyed the Lord. 
because he refused to let the firstborn go. And so the Lord brings judgment upon Pharaoh's firstborn. Now, let me take a pause here before we dive into this judgment. As we're about to lean into God's judgment in this moment, I want to give us a word of caution, or at least just a reminder here before we proceed. There are a bunch of books uh, written in this sort of vein on God's attributes, or that kind of piece out what God looks like, what his various characteristics uh, look like. One of them uh, is The Nature of God by Arthur Pink, and as he's uh, piecing apart the various um, attributes of God, He pauses a moment to say this, and this is helpful for us. Listen, he says, Our aim is to maintain a due proportion in treating of the divine perfections. For all of us are apt to entertain one-sided views of them. The sterner, more awe-inspiring aspects of the divine character are offset by the gentler, more winsome ones. It is to our irreparable loss if we dwell exclusively on God's sovereignty and majesty or on his holiness and justice. We need to meditate frequently, but not exclusively, on his goodness and mercy. Nothing short of a full-orbed view of the divine perfections, as revealed in Holy Writ, should satisfy us. You get what he's saying here? Nothing less than a full-orbed view of God should satisfy us. In other words, we do not want our understanding of God to become lopsided, where we end up emphasizing one or two or maybe three attributes of God, where he's only loving or only wrathful or only compassionate, but we want a full-orbed view of all the aspects of God so that we really know him truly. So we need to keep in mind here in Exodus that we are not trying to say that God is not the judge or pretend that this event is any less dreadful or chilling than it is. The Lord sends the destroyer to carry out his judgments, but it's still the hand of the Lord that strikes the firstborn. But, but, if that's all that God is, if he is only a judge, he will then start to seem to us to be cruel and to be a heartless God. We need to remember as we talk about his judgment that this same God also experienced the death of his own firstborn son, Jesus. That the father gave up his son, that Christ even willingly gave up himself to die. He willingly did this for us. That, That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. This is a testament not only to God's righteousness, but also to his care and his kindness and his love. He is all of these things in a full-orbed view. So, even though we are unable to hold all of God's aspects at once, we can't keep them all together at one time, so we have to focus our attention one at a time. Today, we will focus on God's judgment we at least need to keep in mind that he is more than just judgment. He is a much more full-orbed God. 
Now, that said, with the rest of our time, we really want to wrestle with two questions here from this text. The two questions are these. One, why does the Lord strike the firstborn? And two, how is this just? That's where we're headed. Why does the Lord strike the firstborn? And then how is this just? Let's look at the first. Why does the Lord strike the firstborn? You'll notice if you read through the section that the Lord doesn't just roll the dice on the house. See who kind of comes up. This is not a twisted game of Russian roulette that's dependent upon random choice. The ones who are struck are targeted, specifically so, as the firstborn, purposefully. So then why the firstborn? We know that the firstborn in this culture, they put greater value on the firstborn. They put greater value on the birth order than we tend to do. In our culture, firstborn doesn't mean a whole lot other than the fact that you get the new clothes and don't have to get the hand-me-downs. And maybe, according to your siblings, your parents love you more. That's what a firstborn means in our culture. But not a whole lot of really significant things. In these cultures, both Egyptian and Jewish, firstborns carry the birthright, carry the, the, the family name. They have the greatest share of the inheritance. So that makes sense in some ways, but that's not the main reason why the Lord strikes the firstborn. He even strikes the firstborn of the livestock. Did you notice? And there's not a birthright for livestock. There's no like donkey family name that needs to be carried on through the firstborn. So the firstborn are struck here not because they're the special inheritor of anything, not because they're necessarily stronger or smarter or more valuable. It is not because they are morally better or worse. The firstborn are not more or less deserving of being struck here. But the reason why they are struck has more to do with the fact that they are first. First in the sense that they are the beginning of a series. So in the Psalms, when the psalmists are singing back about this particular occasion, they sometimes talk about the ones who are the firstborn, but they sometimes word it as the ones who are the first fruits. The Lord has struck the first fruits of the Egyptians. And first fruits stands for or exemplifies all that might come after it. So when Israel and their sacrifices would bring the first fruits uh, to the Lord of their harvest as a sacrifice, that first fruits represents the reality that the whole harvest is the Lord's. And, and when Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection, that represents the whole group of people that will be risen with Jesus, not just himself. And, and when in the book of Revelation we see the 144,000 who are sealed and saved by God, they're described as first fruits. 
it's not as if there's only 144,000 that get into heaven and you better hope that you're not 140,001. They're, uh, they're representative of the whole of believers that will live forever with the Lord. So when the first fruits, when the firstborn of Egypt are struck, they represent the whole. They're representative of all the people in the land. From the CEO of Google, whatever that would be in Egypt, uh, to, to, to the mama who's on welfare, to the litter of cats in the barn. The Lord is saying through the firstborn, all of you are mine. Every one of you belongs to me, whether you serve a false god or no god or your own god. It doesn't matter. I am God. I am the Lord and everything is mine. Which means that all of your future, or lack thereof, belongs to me. That's what he's saying in engaging here with specifically the firstborn. Now, that leads us then to the second and more difficult question which is a question worth addressing, which I'll remind us is this. How is it just, or how is it right, that the Lord would strike down all the firstborn? How is this just? Yes, we may acknowledge and realize, recognize that they, everyone belongs to the Lord, but why strike them down? It might seem at first, and in a sense this is true, it might seem at first that the fault of this whole awful mess that has unfolded in Egypt in these three months was Pharaoh's fault. I mean, Pharaoh is the one with the hard heart. Pharaoh is the one who is asked to let the people go. And Pharaoh is the one who defies the Lord. So why not strike Pharaoh's biological firstborn, or better yet, why not just strike Pharaoh and leave everybody else in the land alone? It's actually quite ironic here in the text that when so many are struck in the land, Pharaoh at the end of this scene is still alive. He himself is not a firstborn who is struck. And for the entire nation to have to pay for Pharaoh's sin seems unjust. And I would say that that is too simplistic a way of viewing what is happening here. We know that the reality of the Lord's judgment is complex. And so his his judgment needs a complex response from us. We can't fully deal, of course, with all the complexities now. Even if we understood all of them, there will always be some measure of mystery in this as we engage with the God who's above us. So we have to walk carefully here, approach these things with humility. But as we ask the question, how is this just? we need to see that in the question itself, we presume something. 
If I ask, how is this just? This presumes that those who are struck deserved differently. That those who are struck deserved better, that they somehow deserved their lives, that they had a right to life. Which makes this similar to the very common question, why do bad things happen to good people? Hear that question a lot? Think it sometimes, I know. I wrestle with those things myself sometimes. That question even presumes a sort of tit-for-tat reality. If you do good things, you'll get good things. It also presumes, why do bad things happen to good people, that whoever's experienced it must just be a really good person, that at the center they're really not so bad, that they, they deserved better. And that's actually not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that we as humans are totally depraved, or we sometimes call it radical depravity. Radical meaning at our root, at our core, we are sinners. that we defy God and offend God. That's how we hear Paul addressing this very thing in Romans chapter 3 in various ways, that we are all under sin. Paul says Jew or Greek, or we could say Egyptian or Jewish. However we word it, all of us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That no one is righteous, no, not one. That no one seeks God. We have all turned aside from him. Egyptian, Israelite, or otherwise. That's true of all of us. And I think if we're honest, we know it. You know the hymn line that sings, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. You feel that? If we're honest with ourselves, I think we know that this is true. Maybe you even saw it this morning in the things that you said to your spouse, the things that you did or didn't do. We can see sometimes that root of sin spring up in our hearts and ooze its poison. And with that sin, we hurt each other. We hurt ourselves and we even disregard, dishonor God himself. So what on earth makes us think that we deserve any better than what we've been given? It might help us if we reframe this scene. Imagine a scenario in which 10 cars are parked in the fire lane in front of a store or somewhere where the stripes where you're not supposed to park. 10 cars are parked there in the fire lane and they stay there for days and they stay there for weeks and they just sit in the, in the fire lane and eventually one of those cars gets towed away. It would be natural to be upset by that, especially if mine is the one that gets towed away. You know, but this should help us shift our perspective. The real question there is not, why was the one taken? The real question is, why were the other ones not 
taken. And if the nine remain where they are, how long before their fate will become the same as the first? The firstborn in Egypt here were not, these ones who were struck did not deserve better. But the others who were not struck, Israelite or Egyptian, they did deserve worse. I know that this is a tough, heavy, hard thing for us to grapple with. Questions that arise in our minds about this, it might cause us to wrestle with some hard things in our own lives. So I say this to you, not glibly or flippantly, but with all the seriousness and love that I can muster. I am not trying to crush you, but we, I, need to hear what is true about this. We should be flabbergasted by the ten plagues. Not because of the immensity of God's judgment, but because of the immensity of God's patience. And he was immensely patient with his people and the Egyptians. The implications of that for us now are addressed by Peter in his letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says this, listen he says this, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter confronts his listeners with these things not to scare them, but to help motivate them to shape their lives in holiness by God's grace. That they would just not sit on the grace of Jesus, but actually repent. That they would unpark their car out of the fire lane. We could see here from the mouth of Peter a more full-orbed picture of God, that he is a patient judge. See his judgment intermingled with his patience, similar to the way that we see Christ on the cross intermingling justice and mercy. For the people of Israel, and now even for us, the plagues of Egypt, including now even this tenth bone chilling unimaginable plague. These plagues were not a source of embarrassment for them, 
or apology, that they felt like they needed to justify what God had done or defend the character of God in these things. Instead, when they looked back on this scene, they saw this plague as evidence of the goodness and the love of the God who saves the undeserving. And as a result, this became a source of thankfulness for them. They would sing about it to each other in the Psalms. I'll close here by reading a sec- sections here of Psalm 136. Let's let this move us to join them in thankfulness to the Lord for the way that he is. Let me read here Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. For he who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever, give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, these events now in Israel's history and in ours are heavy, we know. But we thank you for being God, for all that you are, for your goodness, for your justice, for your love, for your patience. Lord, help us not to be crushed under the weight of these things, but to be stirred to see you with awe and to be humbled by the grace that you have given to us who are undeserving. Help us now to walk faithfully as ones who are saved through Jesus, and would you sustain us by your your spirit for your steadfast love endures forever. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.